So after, I think, 13 or 14 weeks, uh, we're finishing our study, which was originally conceived as a summer study, but apparently we've gone over into the fall, even though it's about 90 degrees outside right now. So uh, here, this last part of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, chapter 4, 10 through 23. I I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment, and even more, I am amply supplied, now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To God and the Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, greet all the saints. That was a false amen, right? He says, greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong in Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. Amen. For real this time. Amen. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be God. So a while back, speaking of pastoral interns, a while back, our former pastoral intern, Sarah Neff, preached a sermon in which she explained her superhero alter ego. And it felt like she was like, taking off her glasses, and she was no longer Clark Kent, but she was this superhero who, when all the chips are down, and she's pressed in all sides, Metagirl rises to the occasion. She simply transcends above the fray. I was so inspired and like kind of ashamed that I didn't have that, right? This superheroic persona So I set out on a quest to find my own, and it wasn't until today's passage that I think I found my version of that. So anyone who knows me or, like, my illustrious high school baseball career or, like, my current pickup basketball game knows right at the outset that faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, and able to leap over tall buildings is completely out of the question. Like, I haven't been sandbagging. That's just not there for me, okay, guys? I, I haven't been throwing you off the scent all these years. So don't bother looking up to the sky. It's no bird. It's no plane. 
my superhero is just simply someone I like to call content man. <laughs> and the T is silent. The, the third T is silent on that. So, okay. That's like really cheesy and anticlimactic. Content man. Besides, how can you even consider contentment a superpower, right? <laughs> it, se it seems like the Apostle Paul, though, like darn near judges it a superpower. Like we have all this buildup about where he's writing from and who he's writing to. And, and, and if you knew that he was able to be content from prison to a people who are suffering immensely, like being content in those circumstances is darn near super and darn near heroic. So I think it's a superpower. We'll call it a superpower. I think it's also uh, pretty amazing how he responds at the beginning. Like This is one of the sections in Paul's writings that gets really practical. It's like writing a letter home. And, and if you're reading someone else's letter to their mom or to their friends, like you don't always necessarily know what's really going on, but you sense this deepness of the relationship and this, this heart for these people. But this odd thing happens right at the beginning of our passage. If you look back uh, in the first section, he acknowledges this gift that they gave him. We assume it's some sort of financial or material gift that's going to help him. They've long been his supporters. They were early adopters on Paul. But he kind of gives them a thanks but not really thanks about this gift, right? Is that strange? Like, wouldn't we expect... Like, if you raise funds, you're, you should write thank you notes. If you, we teach our kids, if you get a present at Christmas time, you're supposed to write thank you notes to cultivate this sort of thanksgiving. But he says, instead, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret to being content in, any, in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, and I can do all these things through Christ who gives me strength. He's always teaching. Paul is always pastoring them, always trying to get them to glimpse into this amazing God-soaked reality that they're already in and they just let fly under the radar that, that we're already in and we, we just let fly under the radar that God is present to us and is active and is working even in weird ways, even in strange situations. Their gift to him is important. He appreciates it. And maybe it's even like crucial to his ability to live and to sustain. But Paul, if he believes his own gospel, he knows that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. <laughs> I, I hope you remember that. It was a while ago in our study, but Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So even this gift that they give him that might help him live longer is all relativized by the fact that whether in his life or in his death, Christ is the thing for Paul. And Christ wants to be the thing for us. Like the whole thing of our lives. So while he's thankful for him for, the, for them for the boost, he knows where his source of life and sustenance, where, where gifts come from. He knows the secret 
that any gratitude or contentment he could ever experience has to have God at its core, at its source. He's really good at, at drumming up anticipation for this when he says, I know the secret. I almost, like, it sounded like something like that would be on Oprah. And so I was almost going to have you, like, I've given you guys the secret. Everyone check under your pews for the secret, right? But his secret is simply something they already knew and something they were already founded upon. That is God and God's love for them that has come near to them and near to us in Jesus and continues by the Holy Spirit. This, this contentment, this source, then has its outcome uh, in this growing patience. Paul's able to write all this stuff not um, manic, even though he's in prison. He's able to talk about peace and joy even from, from prison. So, so do, do you start to hear these, these little keywords starting to ping, all these fruits of the Spirit starting to grow out of this, this seedbed in God, then you start to get joy, and then you start to get peace and patience, kindness, goodness, etc., etc. Because when God is our foundation, is our ground, then a garden of all these fruits starts to grow. And this, I think, also shows up in the way he talks. And so this week, like, I'm not really going to give you an application. I'm going to give you a, a practice of, uh, for this week because I think practice makes perfect uh, for us. So try this this week in the way you talk. Instead of saying, it made me happy, Paul says, I greatly rejoiced in the Lord. It's really subtle, and for us it might sound a little like Christianese, but like, that's a pretty drastic difference in what's going on there for Paul. Like, try when something does make you happy, when you are thankful, don't just say, thanks for making me happy, or thanks for doing something nice for me. Say, I am greatly rejoicing in the Lord for what you just did for me. Your little act of kindness witness to this massive God reality that is around us and under us and over us. Paul, Paul it says, and, and in the Greek, I always love to have Joe Longrino around because he can parse this stuff for me. Um, this is not just a joy, but this is a mega joy that he says, I greatly rejoice in the Lord because of your concern for me. And then, then he says, your concern for me that renewed, and that kind of gets lost because that word renew is more like, a, like a, an agricultural word for blossom. Your, this mega joy because, uh, came to me because your concern blossomed. It came and peeked its head out of ground. It's like a subterranean tulip bulb that was lying dormant all winter and didn't bloom yet, not because of self, selfishness or hardship, because the time wasn't right, but now is the time, and it's spring, and there's flowers. Praise the Lord, rejoice. That sort of patience is, is happening because Paul's firm foundation is in the Lord. I think the way we talk in our own heads and out loud, uh, how we frame things might help us live into this reality. So think about this week. Like, for me, having kids really helps me with this. Because you, like, all these theological words don't matter a lot if you can't explain it to them and tell them what it really means for life. And then... They also question the things that you take for granted. You, you quickly realize, like, 
the lowercase g, like God thing, wrote prayers that you say but you don't really mean. You recognize the difference between that. And then you recognize the times when you don't say the, the God things that you do really mean. So having kids around really, really holds you to that. Like having kids around and watching a paper cut heal over the course of a few days is an amazing opportunity to marvel, to give thanks, to have, to greatly rejoice in the Lord, that the Lord heals our bodies that he made and that he cares about. Like something that small, a paper cut. Something that we take for granted, like sometimes if you're a parent, you can get annoyed and be like, just leave it alone, you don't need a Band-Aid, it'll heal in a couple days. But what if instead my reaction was, that's amazing, God is going to heal you. Let's watch, let's expect, and let's thank him for it. And even in this confusing time uh, in between, which sin and death seems to grab onto us and seems to be winning, seems to be owning our bodies sometimes, healing and renewal and resurrection are blossoming, are peeking through like little pinpricks of light in the darkness. If we just have eyes to see and tongues to, to tell those stories. Or... And another instance of this, like common things that we see every day and we, we don't realize how amazing and how important they are. When you get to witness the miracle of someone saying, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's even maybe more miraculous if it's you <laughs> saying it. Or to get to be present for actual forgiveness happening. And you name it as such and don't just let it, fly under the radar, unrecognized. That you frame it and said, in the cosmic good news of that is able to happen, someone is able to, to make themselves less, to be humble, to empty themselves for someone else. Someone else is able to receive uh, that goodwill even though they've been hurt. We frame that in this cosmic good news that God forgives us. God forgives our sin. Whether that's acting in or out of character for us, it's always exactly in God's character to forgive us. And his kindness leads us into repentance. When we practice that kindness or that repentance, or even when we just are third-party onlookers, like we get this, this hint of the gospel. We, we, we work with the grain of God's good purposes and love for creation. So this is the secret. And these are all parts of that secret, that superpower of contentment. And, and, and I, I think the main superpower of contentment is not to like buffer reality, but to just pay attention. To, to, to read and to live and to experience reality fully, all of it, the good and the bad and everything in between. Like, uh, I'll, I'll probably butcher it. Mary Oliver has a poem that says, uh, what does she say? Uh, uh, pay attention. Um, oh, oh, gosh. I didn't write it. I should never do that. Say it again. Pay attention, be, ama uh, be amazed, and pay attention and tell about it essentially I've butchered go look it up talk to Sarah actually she, I know she knows probably someone has a tattoo about it in this church uh, 
So often, though, we think contentment is just living at this, at this buffered five, but contentment is living from the one to the ten and beyond, like living reality fully. And Paul knew that. He knew that to live, to live is to be in Christ. To live is to dwell in the Spirit because the Spirit allows Christ to dwell in us. That somehow we're able to find comfort and contentment even at the lowest and hopefully also in the highest situations because God has made all those spaces and all those places a home for us. Dallas Willard uh, used, to, used to talk about this, that as we grow in trust, really in faith of God's character, who God is and how God acts towards us, it gives us confidence then that the world is a perfectly safe place for us to be. It doesn't ever feel like that. And to say that to someone like Paul sounds absurd, but Paul is confident that God's world is a perfectly safe place for him to be. Because if you trust in God, it's a place where even our faults, even our failures, even our hurts and harms to us are woven into redemptive purposes. That should give us confidence. That should give us contentment. Elsewhere, a few, probably a few years later after writing Philippians, Paul continued to, continues to develop on this theme. And so he writes in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It says, it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It says, no, in all these things we are made more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or demons, present or future, any powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'm going to steal some of Dewey's amens from last week. Can you guys say amen to that? Yeah, right. Do you see how Paul starts to describe and to build this whole world like spatially? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, violence have stretched him all the way out to the red line, to the max. But exactly when pushed to or beyond the max is when and where we are more than conquerors, victors in Christ. Not because of our super heroic ability or capacity, but because God's love in Christ has already gone there. Heights, depths, widths, death, life, next life, all of that, the floor and the ceiling, so that we can't be separated from God's love in Christ. This is the quote-unquote superpower that I can do all this through him who gives me strength taps into. Because the room has just expanded. What once seemed for Paul like a, like a prison cell is now simply just another place where Christ has been, is now, and will be. Paul's begging us to see these little scrawled graffiti marks in our deepest, darkest moments that just say, Jesus was here. Jesus is here. Like when depression comes, and for some, some of us, depression comes like a cloud and we... It, we kind of expect it just to come back. 
and in those hard times are going to rule your mind. And it feels like no one understands or can really even enter it into you. On that floor, you can look down and you can see scrawled in messy handwriting, Jesus is here. When joy seems impossible because another month has gone by and you can't have a baby again, or another month has gone by and you're still looking for work, or another month has gone by and the bills start rolling in, the God of Abraham and Sarah, the God of hope and hopeless barren places, has a little mark right in the corner on that floor that says Jesus is here. When, like, huge systemic things that you don't know really how to grapple with or deal with, when, when things like white supremacy and racism start to reveal themselves, not as some little bug or cork in the system, but kind of a feature in our life, and, and something that was there the whole time, but we didn't really realize that it was so woven in to everything we've known, and it can kind of feel suffocating to try to get out of that matrix. When, when we've mostly been blind to it and mostly benefited from it, that's not an easy fix. Jesus, the obedient one, speaking truth to power and taking on his very human body all of our hurt, all of the sins of the world, is writing his name right there. And when maybe you do the exact same thing that you did last time, it's the thing that you didn't want to do that you do. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. And then you don't do the thing that you know that you should do. That could be like, for the umpteenth time, that, sh- that could be like yelling at your kid irrationally. <laughs> or fighting dirty with your spouse. Like even though you know you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't say that, you shouldn't have that last word. That could be looking at that website that you, you pledged yourself and to God that you wouldn't look at again or taking a drink of that thing that you know is not good for you or thinking that thought or, or w- wishing that ill on someone. Even on that floor of desperation, Jesus has his name right there because he's known everything we've known and yet was without sin. Jesus was with us. Jesus is with us. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he's been there and he's dealt with that. So Paul might have been a little stingy with his outright thanks. But one thing that seems to genuinely mean a lot to them, beyond to him, beyond their gift to him, is from their trials and tribulations, they've somehow been able to mingle their suffering with his, with his suffering. He says, I thank you for sharing in my troubles. Even greater than any check they signed to him and delivered from Epaphroditus is that, that they have presence in communion with him. That presence in that communion is a propeller for joy and contentment for Paul. And it's a witness to the gospel that, that our saving God rarely plucks us out of harm, struggle, and suffering but always enters into it with and for us. Like think about that Exodus story. You remember the Israelites are fleeing Egypt, which the Egypt kind of epitomizes every sort of 
oppression that you can think of. Uh, sin, uh, racial um, uh, enslavement, uh, this kind of cycle over and over that leads to death for, for God's people. And God decides to take them out of them, not by floating them on boats and floating them nicely across. They didn't, you know, uh, abscond with Egypt's uh, armada and push across the sea, though they had the technology to. No, they went right through the sea, right through it. Amazing. Amazing that God is not promising to pull us out, but to go through with us, to meet us there and to take us with him. Instead, this, you know, we, we, uh, we kind of um, mark this in a lot of our church songs. Like, I won't even, like, mention all of the amazing, like, spirituals of people who, who get this, that their expectation is not that God's going to pull them out of enslavement, but that God's going to be with them in there, and they have a hope and a future despite that. But even in, in some of our, our more mainstream uh, hymns, if you get a chance this week, read about the heartbreaking story behind Philip Bliss's contentment anthem, It Is Well With My Soul. Most of us know that song. Read about why that song was written. Or dig into the imagery from Isaiah 41 that we sang today and how firm a foundation. Like, that's a really good hymn writer, but it's mostly written for him. This is from Isaiah 41. I took you from the ends of the earth, from its furthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you, and I have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So God is with us at the floor. But if God is going to be with us at the floor, he better be with us at the ceiling too. Like when things are good, or maybe they're even better than good, that resurrected and ascended Jesus is there to greet you too. He's gone before you in that. I remember as a kid, uh, growing up on the beach in Florida, we would take these field trips uh, to the lighthouse that was not far from where my parents lived, and we would we would climb the lighthouse. And it's, it's a lot like if you've ever climbed Duke Chapel. It's, almost, it's like dizzying, like crazy climb to the top. You ascend and you ascend in the spiral staircase. And like Duke Chapel is so tight that uh, if you're wearing a backpack, it like is all on you, this like stone stairwell. You ascend the seemingly endless spiral staircase that's dizzying and fatigue-inducing, and then you get to the top and you forget the fatigue. Until it's time to go down, of course. But you forget the fatigue because it's so breathtaking, that view from the top. And so often we forget the fatigue at the ceiling, at the top. You don't hear a lot of conversion stories about how good things were. You normally hear people meeting God right after the good thing happened and they didn't realize it was as good as they thought it was going to be or that it couldn't last, right? So next time you get into the rare, rarefied air of success or achievement or you, you finally get to the light at the end of the tunnel at the end of hard, hard days, don't get so caught up in the view that you forget to look for the handwriting of Jesus there too. Like, uh, 
I think Joe went up went up to Duke Chapel last week, and he had all these amazing pictures of of, uh, of the graffiti at the top of Duke Chapel of people signing it from way back. Like that's that's the picture in my head. I imagine you get up to the pinnacle to the top, and and you just have this Jesus, always, always here. <laughs> I've been there. This is what we get again in that master story, Philippians 2. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can also say amen for that too, right? We've got to get better at punctuating these massive doxologies and amens because that's what they deserve. Contentment is based primarily on an awareness that the room of our lives is really big. The floor is really deep and the ceiling is really high and Christ is everywhere in between for us, with us. That's it. Christ is at the bottom. Christ is at the top. Christ is everywhere in the middle. This is what it means to say that our lives are hidden in Christ hidden in plain sight with Christ who is our life. This is our future hope that Christ, who is now even holding all things together, this is all from Colossians, will one day be our all in all. Floor and ceiling, all in all. Think, you can think through the, how this works in our case studies of contentment this week. Two things that, that many of us consider are how to be content when it comes to companionship. Some of us want someone to share life with and, and when you don't have that person or when that person, when it's not as easy with that person as you thought it would be, you can become really discontent. Consider, consider the sort of companionship that we're promised in Jesus, that we're not alone. And also that we're given this Holy Spirit that will bind us to other believers and, and it, exchange, give and take these gifts and this love and this care. Or consider the other um, main source of discontentment. It has to do with money. That we don't have enough. That there won't be enough. That somehow that it's also linked to the fact that I'm not enough. But consider if, if Christ is all, if Christ is holding all together, if Christ is is the floor and the ceiling, that there is enough. There will be enough. This whole uni universe is built on that excess, that grace that says there is more than enough. And we have access to more than enough. And it, 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 that sounds stupid and silly when you're behind and there's no way out. But most of the time that, that just means you need to invite someone else to share in your sufferings with you. And you'd be amazed at what kind of enoughness you unlock by just having someone else share in your sufferings. From here, from this long study in this, of this battle-tested joy of Philippians, we're going to spend most of the fall preparing for Advent. And Advent is that season before Christmas when we celebrate how God is here with us. We, we prepare for Jesus, who's called Emmanuel, God with us. That God has become with us in a special and specific way in Jesus' birth. 
We're going to prepare for that by practicing being present to him. By, by hoping to get our eyes and ears and senses attuned to how God is with us even now. So we're going to dust off or maybe pick up some of the practices that help us remember and tune in to how Jesus is already in the room of our lives, already out ahead of us, already in our midst. Things like being with the least of these when scripture gives us this expectation that when you did something for the least of these, you did them for Jesus. Or uh, this enigmatic saying that the poor are always going to be with you. (laughs) That we can experience Jesus in the midst of the least of these. Or things like reconciling, which we've already talked about. Uh, bridging the gap and, and, and understanding that, that if we open up just enough space for forgiveness and healing and humility to happen, that, that Jesus will be in our midst and make that happen. Or submitting to Christ and one another. This is wh- where you basically take inventory of the gifts that God has given you that you didn't even know that you had. Or being with kids, as we talk so much at Oak Church about experiencing the kingdom with these kids. Or proclaiming the gospel. Uh, being able to speak good news because we've recognized the good news that is available and present even in dark times and places. Or praying in the kingdom. Hopefully we'll, we'll get really experiential in how we're, we're praying together and on our own. And finally, gathering around the table. And that's where I, I kind of want to leave us. Because uh, we do that each week in a couple different ways. We gather around this table where we're met by Jesus where God has given us these gifts of Christ's body and his blood, and then we take that sort of hospitality that we've been given and we practice it. Practice it downstairs. We try to sit across from maybe someone we don't know or wouldn't connect with or wouldn't have anything in common if it wasn't for Jesus. And then we do that. We keep practicing that in our weeks at our, at our supper table, our breakfast table. We try to open up this space for God to show up because he's there and he wants us to know it. Like, one cool thing that you can do as a family, and sometimes we do this is, is uh, and we do this and we don't even really know it or talk about it, but like you light a candle just by, just by eating with someone. And that Christ light is just subtle and flickering right in your midst, right? Maybe even in between you as you're talking as a visual, tangible reminder that God is with us.